I'm Christian Walmart, and this is the Calling All Stations podcast, being broadcast to you from a studio in Cambridge. And with me, as usual, is Mark Walker of Cogitamus. Mark, we've got quite a lot on our agenda today, as usual. Hello, Christian. Great to be in the studio together here in Cambridge. Yes, we're going to be picking up the subject of low-traffic neighbourhoods in an interview you've recorded with Councillor Emily Kerr, who is a leading Green councillor on Oxford City Council. Funnily enough, Oxford, where you ended up at the end of our previous episode after your trip on the Great Western Railway, but looking at a different aspect of Oxford this week. Um, We're also going to be looking at innovative technology being deployed by Eurostar to enable more rapid boarding of their services by passengers through a new identification technology. As this is the end of season one of Calling All Stations, we're also going to reflect briefly on our journey so far and uh, give the listeners a bit of a a cliffhanger ending in readiness for season two. Great, yes. And I I must say, I was uh, very taken with the forthcoming interview, which you'll listen to, um, because Emily is uh, particularly articulate about what has become a ridiculously controversial issue, low traffic uh, neighbourhoods. And indeed, uh, you know, to that sort of measure, along with ULES, uh, which also has attracted a lot of attention uh, because of uh, the Uxbridge by-election whose result has uh, just come through. And clearly, I was on the doorstep in Uxbridge uh, and it was actually an issue, the implementation of the uh, uh, ultra-low emission zone, which means that people have to pay £12.50 uh, to use certain cars, certain old cars, Uh, every day and uh, there is no doubt that this was an issue and so these uh, environmental measures continue to pose a problem for politicians who uh, you know across the board politicians are committed to net zero committed to implementing these measures but then on the ground when they try and implement them they get into all sorts of uh, issues and controversies and and troubles and uh, uh, this interview which will uh, will now play uh, certainly highlights uh, those aspects. Given the controversy about uh, low traffic neighbourhoods and uh, other measures to reduce car use, I thought I'd have a chat with Emily Carr from uh, Oxford Council, who's a long-time campaigner on these issues uh, and indeed has done uh, some research about this. Uh, Emily, you were uh, rather taken aback by what our Transport Secretary Mark Harper said in the Daily Telegraph the other day about the fact that uh, he didn't want to stop people using cars, he didn't want to ban cars, he was all in favour of freedom. What, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, he said that he, you know, he, he felt that it was limiting people's freedom, etc. And, and I think there's a kind of a pro- couple of problems with that, because firstly, it's not limiting people's freedom, it's 
um, limiting the ability of car drivers to shortcut through residential areas. So people that live in the residential areas are still able to access everywhere. In fact, everybody can still access everywhere. It's just that sometimes car drivers have to take a longer way around. Um, and what that means is that you have actually more freedom for people who live in the area to walk, um, to, to feel safe, to take their children to school on bicycles. Uh, for, for older people who, are, who I speak to in my ward about who were previously nervous of the fast rat running traffic, because there's a whole load of statistics on um, people that are, are cutting through somewhere to tend to go a lot faster, you know, potentially drive a lot more dangerously. Um, and so, yeah, so you end up with an, an increased amount of safety. Uh, and so it gives a, a whole group of people much more freedom than they had previously. But why do you think uh, the Tories have so gone on this uh, whole anti-LTN idea, um, anti-ULES, anti kind of any of these measures? I mean, why do you think they're doing this? So I think that's a really interesting question. And I think it's what must be reflected in their polling data in marginal seats. I mean, you know, I could go into a whole sort of Jolly tribe about first past the post, but fundamentally, what it means is that a few people of a certain demographic in certain seats, effectively the red wall seats, and probably swing voters, so they tend to often be, you know, men in their 50s and 60s, probably who've got a very traditional approach to driving um, and freedom. Uh, and those are the voters that both the Conservatives and Labour are appealing to. Now, that is therefore not very reflective of the state of the rest of the country, of people, you know, we consistently see, uh, you know, people that want to be able to walk their kids to school. So young families, women tend to drive less uh, and tend to be more supportive of walking and cycling measures. But if that is not the very narrow demographic of people who the Conservative government is trying to win over, then that's not the messaging they're taking. So, you know, I can only assume that their polling data uh, is showing them that this is the messaging they need to appeal to this particular narrow demographic of voter. And therefore, that's what they're doing. Now, in, in Oxford, uh, there's been particular uh, problems uh, uh, or rather controversy over yeah. this. Um, uh, just first of all, tell me a bit about uh, you know what what has happened in Oxford, and you know apparently, if one reads the Daily Mail, you're actually trying to ban people from travelling from one part of Oxford to another. Yes, I mean, there's been this sort of fascinating uh, 15 minute conspiracy theory uh, that's kind of leapt up um, from from late last year, uh, you know, which nobody was really expecting because it's essentially a town planning concept that 15 minute cities is a town planning concept that says people should be able to walk um, to amenities within a 15 minute group of their house. That's how you should be planning towns. Um, and so to have this turn into a kind of a global conspiracy theory, which happened essentially because after the Oxford traffic filters were announced, uh, which is a concept of stopping private cars driving through the city centre at certain times of day. And, you know, we've had that in Oxford for 20 years, actually, because you can't drive on the high street um, and have not been allowed to for, as I say, a couple of decades. It's buses and taxis only. But it's extending that. It's putting that on a few more roads um, to, to give buses and taxis priority through the city centre. So, you know, this is a fairly concept but it's being rolled out it's being extended we're going to have it on a few more roads and once that was heard about in the, the US we had kind of leading right-wing figures in the US uh saying that this was you know meant that nobody was going to be allowed to leave their zone and, in, in, the know, US, in the US in the US so I think it's partly because Oxford is a globally famous city. So there yeah. were right wing commentators in the US saying Oxford, England is going to ban people driving through. And that, of course, wasn't, 
you know, people would, this wasn't happening, but I think somehow the, the recognition, the brand recognition of the Oxford name meant that this was something that got picked up by right-wing commentators, despite the fact that it's untrue um, and, and therefore fit their own narrative. And, and the thing is that obviously in Oxford itself, people understand the details of the scheme, or at least they did um, once they did some research into it. But it's very easy to say that people in a random British city, if you're an American commentator, are having something imposed on them when you don't have any local experience and most of your readership don't have any local experience of it either. So I think that was something that that really happened, that, that they were able to, to message something that was a narrative about what was happening in Oxford, which wasn't happening in Oxford. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. But th so this actually went viral. It kind of yeah, went yeah, completely. across the world. Absolutely. You know. Absolutely. It went around the world. You know, we had uh, comments on it from from all over the English speaking world, really, Australia, America. But it, it was particularly kicked off in America. And uh, uh, at the Oxford level, you had some fairly heavy looking demonstrations. Yes, we particularly had one in February, um, ironically, uh, using the recently car-free Broad Street, which is, you know, one of England's most historic squares and had been a car park for, for many years. Um, and the, the current administration had actually switched it away from being a car park. They'd got rid of the park, car parking in the middle of it and made it into a lovely pedestrian space, ideal for demonstrations. So then we had a whole load of people, mostly from outside Oxford, descending on Oxford to protest this limitation of cars but choosing to do this in a space where cars and car parking had previously been limited a couple of months earlier. So, you know, that was sort of ironic. Um, and yeah, it was largely people that had come from outside Oxford to protest measures in Oxford, which were um, not what was happening. So it was a very kind of interesting, you know, coalition, this, this, these people that came in February. I think interesting is a slight uh, understatement there. I mean, it, it's slightly frightening, though, isn't it? I mean, did you experience uh, sort of, uh, you know, heavy handed demonstrating against you personally or other councillors? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, we I think anybody that does anything to do with um, trying to make stuff better for walking and cycling, which necessitates making it less easy for cars, you know, it, it almost definitely does. There's almost no circumstance where it doesn't. Um, it receives uh, death threats and you know the like on social media. I heard from Ghent's mayor that he had police protection for the first kind of two months that he implemented Ghent's circulation system, and that was a number of years ago now. Um, it is a very sort of normal reaction. I don't think the presence of the kind of far right conspiracy theories made it any worse, but yes, yeah, certainly it's not very pleasant. Um, but equally, it's a very small number of people. I think you really realise that that are actually threatening. Um, it's the same people. Uh, again and again it's people that are not interested in data or rational argument they're just interested in making threats so you know did it feel particularly kind of unpleasant to have a lot of people coming from all over the city to demonstrate in Oxford to a degree yes but it also was just a bit ridiculous I mean the people didn't understand what was happening like they they were protesting anti-vaxxers they were protesting the world economic forum they were saying that klaus schwab was trying to take over the world with his global elite you know th there was a lot of anti-semitic messaging there was a lot of things that in the demonstration that were just manifestly untrue um and so i think that helped local people realize that whilst they might have perfectly valid objections their agenda was being hijacked by a group of people who were pushing an overall fairly right-wing freedom narrative that was misleading and kind of not based in reality. Oh, you're wonderfully sanguine about this, I must say, Emily. But um, 
So uh, you're suggesting there that some of the local people started disassociating themselves from some of this murder stuff. Absolutely. I mean, it was obviously reported really extensively in our local press. Um, and I think, you know, when you see the signs that say, you know, vaccines kill and um, the the far right is, sorry, the, the World Economic Forum is taking over the world and, and this kind of stuff, you know, a lot of people know that's not true. So then they start to question whether the, the council is really trying to deliberately restrict their freedom of movement or maybe there might be some other you know, rationale to, to what's happening. And then it, it means that I think people did a lot more research on what was actually happening uh, and then became, you know, much more accepting of, of what the rationale was. And, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that it meant people spent a bit more time understanding what was going on rather than just reacting negatively to it. So uh, a few months on from this, uh, it, it has quieted down, but uh, are the schemes going through? Um... Have, have people retrenched or, or or where are we at with it? I know the main the main street is now pedestrianised, isn't it? Uh, you mentioned. Um, yes, exactly. And, and so I've cycled down it uh, a, a month or so ago. And I must say it was Oxford, was, the centre of Oxford was somewhat transformed by by that. So has, that, has it largely won through? So I definitely say the Broad Street pedestrianisation, which initially had a lot of resistance, there's almost none now. I mean, most people now think it's a really great thing. And I think, you know, we see that often with traffic schemes and um, you see it with, uh, you know, congestion charges, anything, people resist a change once the change has happened, a few weeks after they get used to new habits and then they tend to like it. So Broad Street, definitely, definitely positive. Um, I'd say the low traffic neighbourhoods, which is a, a second scheme, um, and that's very much in my ward, um, again, there was always support for the low traffic neighbourhoods um, and there was always opposition as well. But net support was generally a lot higher. There were also a lot of people that were neutral. Um, I think that's probably there's been a, a slight increase in support. We haven't had the net the data back from the, the latest survey. Um, but, you know, that's what you'd expect to see. It's what you see con consistently elsewhere in general. Um, and I'd say the traffic filters, this scheme of extending private car where private cars can't drive during the day um, has, well, it's been delayed for other reasons in Oxford. There's been a, a railway bridge remodelling, which has, you know, required that that gets pushed back till 2024. Yeah, yeah you're rebuilding a railway station and you've blocked off, they've blocked off the road there. Yes, I, I was in Oxford the other day. And, uh, yes, yes, exactly. It's, it's so, fairly chaotic, but yes. Exactly. So that's delayed the introduction of the traffic filters to 2024 anyway. So I think there's been very much um, no objection to them because people are waiting to see what happens and exactly when that comes in and exactly what the decision has been made. So, yeah, the traffic filters have certainly gone very quiet. Right. So um, you've been uh, looking at, at some research I saw that because um, we got uh, yet another uh, survey saying that actually LTNs are, are quite popular and you... Uh, looked at other uh, research on this and what, what did you actually find? Yeah so basically what I did is I looked up um, all of the uh, representative polling surveys on low traffic neighbourhoods that I could find and the reason that that's important the reason it's important to look up representative polling is that there's a lot of consultations that um, councils do and that that just allows anybody to comment um, and they have been uh, inundated with comments from people that do not live in the area to try and either say yes these are 
brilliant, we should have them, or no, they're rubbish, we shouldn't have them. And so it's definitely happening on both sides uh, of the debate. But what you then end up with is people gaming the consultations uh, in order to try and say that there's massive opposition or that there's massive um, support. And to be fair to many councils, they use the same consultation software or same programs for everything that they do. So normally they might be consulting on, you know, the moving of a lamppost or, or a bin or something that genuinely only local people respond to. And what they haven't really expected is the massive response from around, across the country and indeed the world that they get on these particular traffic consultations. So, so the software does not enable you to to focus on just local people because the anonymity of email addresses, presumably. So you, they can't just say only people in so-and-so ward can, can contribute. Right? They exactly. Can't do that. So generally, right. they, um, they ask you where you live, but you can just you know, you can just you can just lie. You can just say right. you live somewhere that you don't live. So it's not a very sophisticated system, and it doesn't need to be. Or, or from almost all consultations that the councils do, you know, nobody fills them in that doesn't live in the local area. They are very effective. However, it turns out that as traffic has become this kind of culture war issue, uh, that the lots of people are gaming the system, and that is why representative polling is so important. So representative polling, as you know, um, takes a, a sample of people that are representative of the local area and asks them questions and then gives a, a fairly accurate kind of view of opinions. And so, again, as you probably know, whenever you do one study, um, you know, there might be reasons for it, you know, giving kind of data that maybe isn't skewed, incredibly skewed data. Exactly. There's always a reason that you can criticise any study on anything. And that's why it's really important to look at a whole series of studies um, in order to see if they kind of say the same thing or maybe they say very different things. So, so what you can what you can see. So I pulled together representative um, polling from the UK in the last five years, specifically on LTNs. And there were sort of, I think, nine or ten different polls. And actually, since then, I've had another three that I didn't know about that people have told me about. So I'm going to update the research. But I think overwhelmingly what you see is that people like LTNs. And that's true whether they're in an area that's had LTNs or, you know, across London where there are some LTNs, people know about them, but they may not live directly nearby to one. But, you know, it, it is most people in general like LTNs and there's a massive proportion of people that either don't know or aren't very bothered. And we do, really don't hear about that group of people very much. This is universal across the board, is it, that, that these polls tend to show uh, that people people like the idea when they're actually affected by it one way or the other they're, they're, they're kind of they're representational so they live somewhere near or in the the area exactly and I've actually just found a poll which is um very much more 50 50 split so you know positive and negative are are pretty much equal um, and so that was not a poll I'd looked at originally but it's it's an outlier because in general you see people supporting them three times as much as opposing them three and times then, as much three times yeah, as and much then, exactly so it's normally about well, about 60 percent support right. and 15 to 20 percent opposition in Oxford it was about 60 percent support and about 30 percent opposition so that's a kind of a, a you know a, a swing that's two times as much supporting right. that's massively less support but still twice as many people supporting as opposing and as I just mentioned I've, I've since found another poll where it's more or less equal um but again you know most of the time most people it's about a three to one ratio so you know that's a really consistent pattern that we've seen in any of the representative polling it, essentially there is overwhelmingly support for ltns from most people okay well two things out one is that anti-ltn people will say oh these are not uh accurate they're carried out by uh, academics who are party free. 
Um, and secondly, a slightly more difficult issue is that the people who are badly affected by this might say we are much more badly affected than people are uh, helped by it. So the antis say, mm. can say, well, you know, this has really wrecked our lives. You know, I can't get to my grandmother or, or whatever. So what do you say about those two points? First of all, about the, the, the uh, you know, the anti-LTN argument that these are skewed polls. Yes, I mean, so I, I think that's a, an interesting point. I, I would argue that while some research, more quantitative research, is done by academics, these polls are done by polling firms. We are talking about Kantar, Ipsos, YouGov, firms right. that, you know, are not in any way uh, biased by one perspective or another. They're not academics. They don't have a point of view. They have a polling methodology. That's what they use to um, understand which way people are going to vote. And they apply that to any question. So um, some of these have been commissioned by the Department for Transport. Some of them have been commissioned by Transport for London, but they're all very independent surveys. So I think that's really important to emphasize. You know, it is not, uh, realistic to suggest that a firm like Kantar has a bias either pro or against LTNs because they they simply right. don't um okay. so that would be how I'd argue the first one you know on the second one um I think a lot of people opposed underestimate how much people care or, or, or haven't considered that yeah just how important children's safety is to a lot of parents. I mean, you know, I have seen a child on my street disabled for life by a rat running driver. I can assure you that there's almost nothing worse than that. Yes, it takes some people longer to visit their grandmothers, but I would argue that, that watching a child grow up disabled because they've been hit by a car, I, I really can't think of much that, that's, actually, that's actually worse than that. And that wouldn't have happened on the road I grew up in if it hadn't been a rat running place, if, if drivers hadn't been speeding through it. You know, had we, I lived in an LTN, that child would not have had that experience. So, you know, I really, I understand that LTNs cause some people problems. I understand that they cause traffic to be, uh, you know, cause journeys to be longer for some people I really do and I know that that's not great for a lot of people but really you know the downsides of having speeding traffic cut through residential areas are also extremely significant uh, that's a fantastically strong point to end on but just as a last question so uh, you know I've writ written about this and, and looked at uh, events across the country and you do repeatedly see in places like Wakefield and Ealing and other places where they put in LTNs and and withdrawn them because of the kind of pressures that you're talking about. So what what do you, how do you advise people who are uh, trying to implement these schemes, trying to to put them put them in, uh, and yet find this kind of initial uh, kind of flood of opposition? How, how do you how do you counter that? So I would love councils to uh, commission representative polling, and I think I'd love them to say what the process is going to be. So I think consultation is extremely useful to get details of what is and isn't working about LTNs, because obviously not all LTNs are perfect. They're a bit like traffic lights, right? Some you know, traffic lights, everyone could think so generally a pretty good idea, but some of them are badly placed or have bad timings or, you know, whatever that they're not saying that traffic lights are all great you know i'm not saying that all ltns are great they need to be well designed and we need to take local on the ground feedback in order to change them so i suppose what i'd really advise councillors um, and officers installing ltns would be to do a detailed consultation on 
what people feel about them, but not to make that a do you support or oppose consultation, because that encourages gaming, as we've talked about. Separately, they should do representative polling from an independent firm that understands how local people feel about it. Because if they put as part of the consultation a question about oppose or support, they will definitely get you know, bad faith actors on both sides of the debate completing it. So I think that's sort of a, a really important thing. But secondly, I would really encourage people to read the data, the literature, um, the, the government's written a whole load, the DFT has written a whole load of things about LTNs that aren't just the headline in the Telegraph that, that um, you know, that the, the Minister for Transport is saying. And actually, there's a lot of really thoughtful, uh, considered research and reports. And I think councillors, on an issue that is as important to their constituents as low traffic neighbourhoods on both sides of the debate, really do owe it to their constituents to, to look up the data, to understand the research, to, to not, you know, not fold under pressure um, when they don't have a strong view. And I think the academic research is pretty overwhelming on it, which is why I believe that many of our councillors in Oxford um, continue to support them simply because a lot of us have done a lot of research on the topic and really do genuinely understand the benefits. Okay, that's absolutely fabulous uh, and fascinating, Emily. Thank you uh, so much for doing that. Christian, you were at St Pancras International the other day as a guest of Eurostar for a briefing on their smart check system, which is just being introduced for the more rapid boarding of their trains by passengers using innovative technology. And I believe you spoke to Gwendolyn Cazenave, who's chief executive of Eurostar, Gareth Williams, who is their general secretary and chief uh, strategic partnerships officer and also Andrew Budd from iProve, who are the technology provider. Tell us more. Yes, well, we had a, a, a conversation, which you'll hear in, in, a, in a minute. And, uh, you know, I think uh, there is actually something quite exciting about this technology. And um, uh, we also got uh, some information about, you know, the future of Eurostar and how it's going. So here's the interview. So tell, tell me about this system, because uh, obviously it's been long in the development. I've written about this many times, about you know, what a hassle it is and, and whatever. So tell me about how long has this been in development? Well, uh, the first thing maybe to say is that uh, this technology is key for us because uh, in the perspective of improving the customer experience yeah. in Pancras, uh, improving the capacity of the station. We have, I would say, many, uh, many parts, uh, many subjects to deal with, and iProve was part of the solution. It is part of the solution of the customer experience at St. Pancras and part of the growing capacity. So I don't know, maybe you know better than I, but uh, when, when the idea became, because, you know, now the, my main, my main challenge the main challenge of Eurostar Group now is to grow capacity between big cities and, smart, and with a 
a good and I would say an amazing when possible customer experience. So SmartCheck is a part of this uh, of this project. The growing capacity of stations. It, it's also uh, growing staff from uh, border police. Uh, investing in e-gates, automated uh, automated gates. So it's you know it's a large I would say yeah, yeah. large no, it's part a, project. It, it, so no, SmartCheck and I know that SmartCheck began. A few years ago, before before COVID, before was it? COVID, we've mm. been actually talking with Eurostar about this concept for about the last seven years. Seven years. Yeah. We but were able. To, we built. We built the first. We started building the first. Um, the first proof of concept systems just before COVID, at the beginning of 2020. Timing could not have been more remarkable. <laughs> Fast forward, the the uh, the proof of concept was successfully completed. Um, at uh, the beginning of 2022, and since then we've then developed that we learned learned a great deal about what needed to be improved, and over the last year and a half we've developed the technology to the point at which it's now in now in production. Okay, so, so, so tell me how many who's who's going to be using it? This is just for business passengers, is I it? I would say maybe before that, yeah. just to be, as we have a very big challenge about growth, about our project of building the backbone of sustainable travel in Europe, it's really key for us to be innovative, to show that we are finding solutions, right. we are finding different, and that's why I was not there when, when, when the, the project was launched, but it's, it's, you know, for us it's great and it's key to show that we are innovative, we show that seamless crossing borders and automated cross borders is not science fiction. We can do it. We Despite can, Brexit. <laughs> I mean, whatever. Yeah. In, the situ in the situation where we are now, yeah. the, the, the situation at St. Pancras, the situation of a very strong willingness to travel for all the European, British and European uh, customers. So, for us, it's really key to show that we are part of, innov of innovation. First of all, because it allows to have a very good customer experience at St. Pancras for the moment for our customers. And second, to show that we are pushing solutions. Eurostar Group is pushing solutions in the perspective of EAS, when we talk to other governments uh, about border polices mm. in France, in, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, when we talk to the, EU, the European, uh, to the EU. So it's really both on the very St. Pancras, innovative, uh, new solution to cross border, okay. but also uh, to show that we are innovating, we push for solutions and we push in the global environment where we are now in the new Europe. Okay, so how will this and work? Because this is, is it, will this work for everybody eventually? So, this is only for business moment, at the at moment. At the moment, uh, we already had 150 customers who crossed the border for with real check. with SmartCheck. And right. they said they were really happy with it. Right. So it's strong a high level technology innovation so now we begin with bp and carte blanche right. we'll see because also i mean it's bp being business business, business premier sorry yeah. it's, uh, it's business <laughs> not, not a petrol company <laughs> no, okay. not british petrol right yeah uh, so uh, and we will offer this possibility to the customers and we'll see how they deal with it, how they react, 
for the moment, 150, we knew they would be okay because they had already been part of the first trial. So uh, it's a step-by-step -step, uh, process. process. Yeah. Yes, this is the first step. Maybe I think yeah, it, it's part of the it's part of the innovation. You're seeing how customers respond to something that is completely new and innovative. Yeah, the ability just to walk past and complete those processes. But also, as Gwendolyn says, it's showing governments that the technology is here, it's robust, it works, it's the kind of thing that can be built on. And I, I think if you look back, you're talking about how long has it been in development. I think over that period, two things have changed. One is the thinking of governments and their openness to this technology. We were deliberately with iProve and their partner, Entrust, using the same technology that was used four million times, five million times, the EU enrolment system. So it was trusted by the Home Office, it had been proved, it had been demonstrated, and it was aligned with what they had produced as their future strategy. So that's thinking. And then the technology has evolved. If you go back even to the proof of concept last year, it was still a system where you had to walk up, stop, smile at the camera, wait for your clearance. And now, up to, just up to four people at once can just walk Yes, through. I was impressed yeah. with that. Yeah. I, I just walked through it and it showed a picture of me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they uh, recognised uh, you. Uh, we were saying, you know, an early test of the technology was day one. We had a pair of identical twins walk right. right. But theoretically, you know, so it is in theory. So if you had four people walk through all at once you know, yeah. and kept doing that, that one podium has the same capacity as the whole of the rest of the station. Wow. So potentially, it, it is something that can right. be really innovative, really beneficial to customers, and demonstrate to governments this can, this can work. So when are you going to roll it out for uh, the other passengers? Depends on how it works. If right. it works, uh, we'll see in a few months. So it's, you know, it's a step-by-step -step, uh, innovating uh, process, I mean. So right. it's, of course, about the other passengers, but it's also about the way uh, you cross borders all over Europe in the Eurostar group environment, which is key as well. So it's also, it's part of the global customer experience we are building at the moment with the police, the border police uh, authorities, uh, with the stations, so there are many, you know, many parts of the global project to make uh, the best, uh, the best customer experience as we can right. so, and to build so capacity. Will it help you restore Epsfleet and Ashford? That's uh, a big question because yeah. I think a lot of people in Southeast are kind of slightly miffed that they can't yeah, get their you know, train. The, so would the, they, will this actually help? The question, that? Yeah, the question of Ashford and Elfit is ha the, the decision uh, made to, uh, to uh, not to stop in Ashford and Elfit anymore has been a very difficult decision for Eurostar. Uh, and the, the situation is that now, from a financial, from an operational, and from a customer experience perspective, we cannot reopen Ashford and Elfit at the moment. Why? Uh, because if we would reopen Ashford and Epsit now, we would need to send resources, and I mean mostly border police uh, yeah. officers, 
to wash for our which we which would reduce by 20% the capacity of St Pancras it means less uh, it would it would reduce by 4000 for between 4 and 5000 customers in St Pancras a day a, a day. day and Ashford and Epslit was around 1000 so at the moment it's not an option because we're not yet on a seamless, uh, without use, border crossing at St. Pancras. We have another hurdle, uh, a coming hurdle, I would say, which is EES implementation, which is a great project as well. We don't know the date exactly. It should be 2024, post-Olympics, yep. but... Uh, and then... This is the European... Um, exit, uh, yes. exit, uh, European entry, entry and exit Schengen system, uh, Schengen, right. uh, yeah. uh, you see where, uh, And then uh, uh, this EAS, we need to implement 24 registration kiosks at St. Pancras. It means that UK and non-EU customers will have to pre-register at this kiosk, then cross the border. So we are not, it's not, I mean, the whole capacity implementation, the ability to grow the capacity at St. Pancras is not yet finished. We are facing challenges, we are working with authorities, we are facing, facing challenges. So at the moment, we could not afford reopen, I mean, Ashford and Fleet for this question. Right. After that, the question, of course, will be reopened. But one thing is really important to say, we are not letting customers without uh, solution. Ashford and Elfleet customers can come to St. Pancras and then take the train to cross the channel. Yes, of course, but it's, uh, it, it's kind of not, not the same. So this new European system, uh, is that going to cause further delays? And, and does smart check, is smart check part of the we solution are, to this? No, the, the, the thing is, you know, now we are operating in a new environment. Right. I mean, Eurostar Group, so Eurostar plus Thales, which is now a yeah, yeah. big company with a, a European, I mean, footprint, is operating in a new situation. Post-Brexit, post-Covid, post-pandemic, and now we have EES, which is true. It is putting pressure on the system. And there is, there are many customers. The growth of traffic is amazing, both on European, British, European markets, and also overseas market. Uh, if you see just in June this year, we had plus 20% of American customers. So globally, the market is, is really growing high. That's why also we have a growth strategy uh, on, right. the, on, the, on the global Euro Eurostar group. So yes, we are facing challenges. And what we are doing since we've been doing since years, but since <laughs> 10 months I've been a Eurostar CEO, is to work hard with IPRO for SmartCheck, with governments, with bo French, uh, French border police, with UK border police, Belgian ones, with station management, HSY at St. Pancras, SNCB at Brussels, uh, SNCF Gare Commission in, um, in Paris. So it's really to make the conditions to find the solutions. And when you are with the stakeholders around the table, you find solutions. If we talk about Amsterdam, I'm sure you heard about what happened in Amsterdam. Yeah, you're not they close had for said, a year. They had yeah. said, we're going to close the terminal for yeah, a year yeah, because yeah. We, need, we need to close it for work. Right. Well, 
I went to Amsterdam, I went to the, to the, to, to the Hague to say, okay, it's not possible from a Eurostar perspective, it's not possible for a British and Dutch customer perspective because they want to travel in a sustainable way. So let's sit around the table and see what could be the solution, what could be the what compromise we could find. So what's happened? So uh, we just appointed the four of us, Eurostar Group, the Dutch government, ProRail Network yeah. and NS, the four of us, we appointed a railways expert, a neutral one, a Swiss one, which is, uh, I don't know if you know <laughs> them. <laughs> yes, as neutral as you can get. So we co-appointed them and they are currently working on assessing the situation, making a diagnosis of the work, the phasing, the way they, and, and so on, and they should give, give us their report, I would say, uh, mid-September and say, okay, here is the compromise we could say we could we could find here are the solution or not solution and so on when is it scheduled uh, to close amsterdam the, the, uh, the june 24. oh oh nothing oh right, right. so uh so but i'm still yes right. we have time to sort it out right we have a very strong i would say from all the stakeholders a really really strong uh, willingness to find a solution we have the better swiss experts so uh we are always uh, on the side of solutions, right. so uh, okay. I'm optimistic, I would say, if okay. I can say. One of the oddities of the station is that you have this vast area where you arrive uh, that is completely underused and you have this terribly congested departure lounge. Have you, have you tried to work out how to, uh, how, how to, to make use of that space? Yes, of course. Yes. That's pay. Uh, well, we are we are in the beginning of a, of a, of a process of thinking about what could be because, as you can imagine, 30 million passengers in 2030 needs, right. as I say, uh, to push the walls in stations, and St Pancras is our biggest stations because it is the station where all our trains, right. Eurostar, cross-channel yeah. trains, departs. So we really need to find more space. And yes, you're right, this space in front of those trains yeah. is a space which could be, you know, uh, used. Yeah. And uh, at the moment, we are working hard with HS1 on the current situation. We are working hard to implement the 24 yeah. ES kiosks. And uh, currently, 38% of the station is used for cross-border cross, cross um, <coughs> operations. So. Uh, Yes, we're working. We're working with HS1 on right. the future projects to okay. grow the capacity. Because I've had an uh, I've had a session with this ever since uh, the station was opened about all the unused space. You're, you're right. It, it, it's, it's known as Project Spice, the Pancras International Capacity Enhancement. And the, yeah. the plan has been sitting there for a while, but it's why that pricing review becomes so important because we need to create. The, the commercial headroom right. that gives us the the opportunity to invest in in the station. Okay, let's hope it happens. <laughs> so you're really struck by this initiative, Christian? Uh, yes. Look, I mean, it takes something uh, to impress me in terms of technology because you know so much of it either doesn't work or isn't particularly impressive. But this was really very different because uh, I downloaded uh, the 
app, which was uh, quite easy, and then downloaded the information into the app, which was really interesting because you could hold your passport against your phone and it would read the chip in your passport uh, and download all that boring information that you have to put about expiry date and the number of the passport and date of birth, all in one go, all in there, straight away into this app. And then uh, uh, you actually scan in a, a ticket, um, that the ticket that you've been given, and then uh, it lets you through uh, the uh, barriers straight away. And you just walk through, you, you don't even stop, and it flashes up a picture of yourself, uh, which is the picture that's obviously Im embedded in the, in the uh, app, and uh, you just go straight through. And I'm told that you can get up to four people at a time going through um, without uh, stopping. And this is, you know, at last the railway is doing something really innovative, something that's actually in advance of anything you get uh, in the aviation industry. It's taken seven years to get this far, but um, you know, once this is rolled out properly, it might well help uh, the situation at St Pancras where, you know, it is really chocolate. And indeed, you know, on the day I went, it was absolutely jam-packed. So, um, you know, a bit of good news and a bit of new tech from the rail industry. This is the final episode from season one of Calling All Stations with Christian Warmar but by no means the end of Calling All Stations because we expect to be back in September with season two with some new ideas, issues and themes to present to our listeners. But I think, Christian, we'd very much like to thank everybody who's listened in and downloaded over the last seven months since we first launched on the 14th of December. Uh, has helped us in some cases actually make headlines in other media with our content and we're looking forward to coming back in the autumn. Yes, I must say I've been delighted by uh, the number of listeners that we've been getting, uh, the stories uh, we've broken, uh, the fact that you know guests are always delighted to come on our podcast and we've had you know great guests uh, across the board, all sorts of people uh, happy to uh, share their thoughts with us. Uh, we've had a lot of uh, very positive uh, feedback. And what started as maybe a kind of initiative that we didn't quite know where it's going, I think we, we now have a real direction of travel. We, we want to build this up. There isn't anything else like this. There's no other podcast uh, covering uh, across the board transport. There are odd ones on, on railways or, or whatever, but nothing kind of really that takes in the, the generality of the, the transport industry um, and uh, with our new features which will be quite newsy and, and different and, and we're going to kind of improve we're going to improve the music which I think is a good thing and, and make other kind of changes which we hope will uh, really hope calling help calling all stations to as it were take off to use an aviation expression. So like all first seasons we have to end with a cliffhanger. So here, for the last time this season, is Christian's final thought from the Departure Lounge. Well, uh, I've taken the view that it really seems that the Department for Transport is trying to stop people from using the railway. So we had uh, the story that we uh, actually uh, scooped, the released, 
which was on how they wanted to uh, rain back on Wi-Fi and not bother providing Wi-Fi for passengers. Then, of course, uh, covered in, in our last episode, uh, the booking office fiasco, uh, you know, actually suggesting that a thousand ticket offices across the country should be closed down, including Houston, Birmingham, New Street and Manchester, and all sorts of other big offices. Absolutely kind of insane. And it, so the question is, um, at, at the end, when we come back in September, you know, will there be uh, uh, anybody using the railways if they put people off in this way? And indeed, will there even be a railway network left if they continue in this vein? Calling All Stations with Christian Walmart is a Cogitamus Limited production. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do consider giving us a five-star rating with whichever platform you use. Do also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at AllStationsPod. Pod.